Good morning. Today's scripture reading comes from Luke 1, verses 46 through 56. Listen for God's word for us. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. And Mary remained with her about three months and returned to her home. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Good morning, church. It's good to be back with you this morning. I was in Ohio for Thanksgiving uh, with my family. It was really fun. We flew back through O'Hare yesterday. Um, yeah, so I got to hang out with that one. Uh, that's Lucy. That's my little niece. So my younger sister, Esty, that's her. And I got a few pictures. Just in case the coffee didn't warm your heart, I wanted to give uh, you another opportunity to get your heart warmed. I think we have two other pictures there, too. You can click through. So that's little Lucy. I got to hang out with her. And there's one more. Uh, yeah, how cute is that? So I got to hang out with her this Thanksgiving. I was just reminded of how grateful I am to spend Thanksgiving with family and friends and the opportunity to give thanks to God for the privileges, the blessings that he's given us. Um, and as we move from Thanksgiving into the Christmas season, you see that our downtown campus is decorated so lovely. We had Decorate Downtown uh, a few weekends ago, so thank you for those of you who came out to help decorate uh, this little campus. Our little campus downtown looks beautiful. We have the lights. We have the advent candles. But when I look around the room, I see a room divided. In this very room, lines have been drawn. People have taken sides. I'm talking about something more polarizing than even politics or religion. I'm talking about Christmas music. There are those people who begin playing Christmas music on November 1st. You know those people. Uh, I should have a slide up there. Yep. So my wife is one of those people. And I'm a little bit more sane. I'm more like this. You'll see this next slide. And now even if the thought of Christmas music, even if the thought of Christmas music makes you feel like this, that's my last, this is my last one, um, you can't deny the power of songs. They, songs move us, they draw out our emotion, they unearth things that we hold deeply within us, they often put words to things that we feel. Songs have the power to convey meaning, they uh, evoke emotion, and Christmas music is no exception. So wherever, even if you feel jolly or jaded through the Christmas season, these seasonal songs impact us. And so what we're doing for our Advent season is we're going through the first songs of Christmas. And what I'm what I mean by that is that we're not actually going to be talking about the tunes that we hear in the mall. That's not what we're doing. But the Advent, during this Advent season, we're going to be looking at the story of Christ's birth through the songs that are sung in the opening chapters of Luke. So did you know that there are songs in the opening chapters of Luke? In the first two chapters, there are a number of songs that are sung. And so we're going to be going through those as we prepare for Christ's birth on Christmas. And as we listen to these songs, we hope that you'll discover that Jesus is the song that your heart longs to sing. And once our Advent season is over, 
we're going to continue in our study of Luke through 2020. So we're going to be picking up throughout the gospel of Luke throughout 2020 and into 2021. And we're really excited to do this as a church. And after these next few chapters, we're going to approach Luke from the lens of a skeptic. So how would a skeptic approach the gospel of Luke as they read Luke? And you might be asking, why Luke? Why Luke for our Advent series? Why Luke throughout 2020? And there's a number of distinctives in the gospel of Luke that uh, gave us reason to choose the gospel of Luke for this cultural moment, this time that we're in right now. And I want to give you two reasons for why Luke now. And the first is that Luke writes in defense of Jesus and the gospel to a Roman audience. So as we dig into Luke, even this morning, Luke presents the gospel as a gospel for all human flourishing. Therefore, he defends the goodness of the gospel. He takes effort to show that it's winsome, that it's pure, and it's pleasing. And so in our increasingly secular age, the movement from uh, evangelism and apologetics has shifted. And typically, traditionally, we understood uh, evangelism and apologetics as this idea that we're proclaiming the absolute truth of Christianity and we're saying that this faith stands on its own against other major world philosophies and our evangelism kind of follows suit. We declare the absolute truth of Christianity in our evangelism. But that has slowly shifted and that's because our culture has shifted. And so now the work of apologetics and evangelism is more to make the Christian faith, to make the gospel seem plausible to people. And then also to make it seem desirable, that this is something that they should want. So before we even address the question of, is Christianity true? As Christians, we're going to find ourselves answering the question, is Christianity good? I was at Trinity, my seminary, just a few months ago. And Dr. Graham Cole, a systematic theology professor, said he, he said there, he said, now the work of evangelism is asking the question or defending the question, is Christianity a public good? And so what's interesting about Luke is Luke does some of that work for us in his gospel. What he's doing is he's defending the goodness of the gospel. So we get to see him model that for us as we read Luke. And it speaks right into our cultural moment right now. So that's one reason why Luke now. And then the second reason is Luke has an emphasis on Jesus being not only the Jewish Messiah, but Savior of all the world. There's a universal, universalizing to humanity in Luke's gospel. So for Luke, he absolutely wants to make clear that Jesus brings liberation for all people, not just the Jews. And in our world today, that's a message, right, that can't be said enough, that Jesus brings liberation to all people. Jesus welcomes all people. He brings them together in unity under his banner. And he brings liberation to anyone who's able to recognize him as Lord and to pick up their cross and to follow him. And we as Christians in Kansas City, we need to continue to hear that message and speak that message into the culture here. So those are two reasons, just to wet your tongue as to why we're digging into Luke for the Advent season and into 2020. But let's turn to our passage this morning, and our passage is a portion of the birth narrative of Jesus, and it crescendos into Mary's song, which was verses 46 and 50 through 56. That was read for us brilliantly by Carolyn. She did a great job. But turn with me to verse 26. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to verse Luke chapter 1, verses 20, verse 26 and 27. That's actually where our passage begins this morning. So look with me at Luke 1, 26 and 27. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth and to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. 
And so we're, we're clearly picking up a little bit into the story here. It says, Luke says, in the sixth month, which means that this is the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy. That was hard to pronounce. The sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy. And so Elizabeth, we already saw her on the scene, if you read uh, the first chapter of Luke. And so she's going to give birth to John the Baptist. So in the sixth month of her pregnancy to John the Baptist, an angel Gabriel appears to Mary. And so at the outset of our story, Mary and Joseph are there betrothed to each other. And Luke makes it clear that Mary is a virgin. So if you're familiar with Christian tradition throughout the centuries, Christians have always held that Mary was a virgin at the time of Jesus' conception. However, there are two controversies that surround the birth narrative that are important to address at the outset of our passage. Before we get too much into it, there's two other things I want to address. Controversies around this birth narrative. And one is that the birth narrative, uh, there is this idea out there, an argument that the birth narrative is derived from a pagan mythology. And so it's something that was borrowed from pagan myths that was implanted into the gospel, into Jesus' story to make him seem, seem like king, like savior, lord of the world, right? And that's an argument that we will find frequently um, when we talk about the virgin birth, but there are no pagan parallels to be found to this story. And what we do have, however, are messianic prophecies in the Old Testament that expect a Messiah to be born. So check out Isaiah 7.14. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. And what does Emmanuel mean? God with us. And then just a few chapters later in Isaiah 9, verses 6 through 7, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. This is a different kind of Messiah. This Messiah is God. So what we don't have are pagan parallels to this story, but what we do have are Old Testament prophecies that expect a Messiah to be coming. And this Messiah is very different. D.A. Carson, he's a theologian and professor from Trinity Evangelical Divinity School. He says this, and you can check it out in the slide behind me. Luke presents the theology of the incarnation in a way so holy and so congruent with Old Testament sacred history that any comparisons with pagan mythology seem utterly incongruous. Instead of the carnal union of a pagan god with a woman producing some kind of semi-divine offspring, Luke speaks of a spiritual overshadowing by God himself that will produce the Holy One within Mary. The second controversy around the virgin birth narrative is this idea of the immaculate conception. You might have heard of this doctrine before. It teaches that Mary was preserved free from the, sin, from the stain of all sin. So essentially she was without original sin so that she could give birth to a sinless savior in the virgin birth. And the term immaculate conception is kind of confusing because it leads us to believe that Jesus himself was born sinless. But what it's really referring to is that Mary herself was born sinless and lived a sinless life. And so some Christians believe this, and I just kind of want to approach this head on and say that we should not, like some Christians, venerate Mary as quasi-divine. Mary was not without sin, and I know that because of our passage this morning in verse 47, what she declares in verse 47, she says, she calls God my Savior, which contradicts the idea that she would live a sinless life. If she was sinless, then she wouldn't need a Savior, right? But she says, God is my Savior, and so we shouldn't downplay Mary as just another woman. I don't want to do that, and you'll see that in my message today. We should remember, we should celebrate, we should emulate this great woman of faith, humility, grace, and obedience. 
And yet by Mary's own testimony, she needed the cleansing from sin that only God, her Savior, could provide through her own son. And so with those controversies put behind us, really for the rest of this series, setting the stage for Luke and the birth narratives in Luke, I want you to take a moment and think back to those 10 verses that were read for us beautifully by Carolyn. And just think back to those verses and ask yourself, what could have caused Mary to sing such a song? Mary is an example for us of what happens when we encounter God's grace and then respond to it. And so if there's one theme, one big idea, one takeaway that I want you to have from this message is that God's grace makes us sing. And I believe this to be true both literally and metaphorically, but what I mean here is that when we encounter God's grace, we cannot help but respond, and we will see that within Mary's life in our passage this morning. Turn with me to verses 28 and 29. Verses 28 and 29, Luke writes, And he came to her, talking about Gabriel, and said, Greetings, O favored one. The Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. So the ESV says that Mary was, uh, she was greatly dis- distressed, greatly troubled. And I really like the message translation of this. It says that she was thoroughly shaken. Mary was not so much alarmed by the presence of the angel, but it was what Gabriel said to her that alarmed her. It was what He spoke to her, which caused her to be greatly distressed and thoroughly shaken. It was not the messenger, which most of us would believe, like, okay, if Angel Gabriel appeared to me, right, I would just be shaken because of his presence there. But it was not the messenger, it was the message that shook her. Did you notice how Gabriel describes Mary? He greets her as favored one. And I love this. This is a rich word in the original language, and it expresses the significant beauty, worth, and loveliness of a person. And again, the message captures this translation, uh, the heart of this meeting so well. It translates Gabriel's words to Mary this, this way. You are beautiful with God's beauty, beautiful inside and out. So before Mary had done anything in response to God's call on her life, she was declared by God to be beautiful, gracious, lovely. And her beauty is not a result of anything that she did. It wasn't a result of her effort. It wasn't a result of the work that she put in. No, she was declared by God as favored because of what God had done and is speaking over her life. It's who God made her to be. Luke says that Mary tried to discern what kind of greeting this could be, and in essence, she's wondering, how could I be receiving this kind of greeting? How of all people am I holy, am I favored by a glorious God? So think of it this way. Mary was 15 to 16 years old. She was an early teenager. She was in the Roman Empire, and so therefore she had no public rights as a woman, and her social standing was dependent upon her family or the man that she married. So Mary couldn't comprehend what she was hearing because she had a realistic perspective of where she was in her society in the day. Why would an insignificant girl from an insignificant town called Nazareth have the God of heaven speak to her and even more call her favored? How could that be? 
But it's clear that Mary's social status had no impact, no bearing on how God saw her. And Mary was not favored because of anything inherent in her, right? She was not sinless, nor was Mary earning anything to make her favored because that's not what favored one means. Again, favored one means that God, out of his love, has bestowed upon her graciousness, loveliness, and beauty. Mary was only favored because of God's grace. And when we encounter God's grace, it will trouble us too. Grace is not just a nice thing that a nice God does to make us feel nice. In this first part of our passage, what we see is that God's grace is a radical act that should shake us to our core because of how high and holy God is and how low we are. If you're a follower of Jesus and you have not had a moment of seeing God's grace as shocking and unbelievable, then you should ask yourself if you've ever really understood or experienced God's grace. And I don't mean that to cause panic in you but rather awaken us to how magnificently scandalous God's grace is. So let me ask us the question, when was the last time God's grace troubled us or shook us, shocked us? There's a few diagnostic questions. Do we know the depth of our loneliness in contrast to the heights of God's holiness? Do we live in every day in light of the fact that it is by God's grace that we are alive? And for those of us in this room that claim Jesus, claim to follow Jesus, do we understand that it was while we weren't alive and while we didn't even care that God sent his son to die for us? But if you're here and you're a follower of Jesus, what I probably, and you're not a follower of Jesus, what I probably just described for you could be one of those things that just has kept you away from God. God's grace seems like a far-fetched idea And you might feel like you're too far gone to be loved and accepted by God. And what I hope you hear is that you're actually closer to understanding God's grace than what you understand. Because on your worst days, you are never beyond the reach of God's grace. And on your best days, you are never beyond the need of God's grace. It's in the recognition of our need for God that we take the first step towards the kingdom of heaven. You might recall Jesus' words in the Sermon on the Mount. This is Sermon on the Mount is in Matthew 5 through 7. It's the first great teaching that we have of Jesus in the Gospels. And the first words that he shares are the Beatitudes. And the first Beatitudes that this God-man, God coming to earth, shares with us, the very first Beatitude is, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And what does that mean? It means, Blessed are the destitute in spirit. Blessed are those who know that they have need for me. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. It's in our recognition that we need God that is the first step towards the kingdom of heaven and recognizing the fantastic nature of God's grace. One of my favorite scripted prayers is that I pray is is a Puritan prayer. And it's a prayer called the Valley of Vision. Um, And it does a brilliant job for me of showing me how it's in the valleys of my life that I often recognize my need for God's grace. And I'm only going to read the beginning of the prayer, but I encourage you to check it out. It's on the screen. Uh, behind me, just the first part of the prayer. Lord, high and holy, meek and lowly, thou has brought me to the valley of vision where I live in the depths, but I see thee in the heights. Hemmed in by mountains of sin, I behold thy glory. God's grace is a radical act that should shake us to our core and help us understand the holiness and the highness of God and our 
own lowliness. If you're troubled by God's grace, this is the first step to really understanding the fantastic nature of God's grace. And unlike anything else in life, God's grace is unearned. It is a gift. So when we encounter God's grace, it'll trouble us. It'll shock us. It will seem incomprehensible to us. But God's grace has even more than that in store. And after the angel tells Mary that she will miraculously conceive and give birth to the Son of God, Mary responds with these words. Look forward with me to verse 38. Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And that, of course, sounds lovely. I think all of us would like to think that we would respond that way if Angel Gabriel was standing before us and we were in the place of Mary. But I think we need to feel exactly what Mary felt in that moment. Again, Mary was a young woman in her early teens. She was engaged, but not married, and she was pregnant now. She was at the risk of her fiancé leaving her, which was customary in the ancient Near East. And even more than that, it was probable that she would be punished because people who suppose women having a child out of wedlock, they would punish them or even put them to death. So the dichotomy here is big because Mary was favored by God, but God's favor wasn't doing her any favors, if you know what I mean. She is in a worse position being pregnant after having an encounter with God than she was before her encounter with God. Think of the cost that Mary is having and will continue to have throughout her life because she is called favored one. She's heading down a road that is ripe with ridicule. It's fraught with pain, riddled with rejection and shame. All because she is called favored one and has a special place in God's plan of redemption. And this is what is so bold and courageous about her response in verse 38, because even in the midst of all of this, she declares that she is a servant of the Lord. And she doesn't do this begrudgingly with her hands tied behind her back. Instead, Mary responds with joy. And that, ver that word behold there, that's like a clue for us uh, by Luke to tell us, hey, pay attention to what Mary is saying here. It's like when you send a text with like an emphasis. Have you ever sent a text with like fireworks coming behind it? Or like with that slam that's coming down. It's so it's like telling people to not just pay attention to the words, the content of your text, but also like the feeling, the conviction that be that's behind your text, right? That's what Luke is doing for us with that word behold there. He's letting us know that Mary is responding with joy. And so being a servant of the Lord is not just a part of Mary's life. It's not just a slice of her pie or the facet of her identity, Mary is saying who she is, first and foremost, above anything else, is a humble servant of the Lord. So we learn from Mary that when we encounter God's grace, it will humble us. Mary's blown away by God's grace in a way that not only troubles her in the best way, but also humbles her in the best way. We see that in her song later in, uh, in, in, a, in our passage, verse 51 and 52. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has exalted those of humble estate. So Mary's newfound status as favored by God, right? It doesn't puff her up. 
and cause her to see herself as greater than others. On the contrary, her entire identity is being reoriented around being a humble servant that uses power from above instead of power from below. And what do I mean by that? Power from above versus power from below. And these are terms that were established by Jamin Goggin and Kyle Strobel in their book, The Way of the Dragon and The Way of the Lamb. And in this book, these two authors, they talk about Christian power. Their beef is that they have often found vocational ministers to jettison power from above in favor of power from below. And so I think I have the definitions behind there for you. So power from below is power found in the self for the sake of control. And power from above is power from God known in weakness for the sake of love. And in our passage today, it's clear that Mary sees the grace of God as that which empowers her to serve others as a humble servant. And so God's grace is not an excuse of her to manipulate and control others around her. Mary is an example and should cause us to ask ourselves, where are we using power from below instead of power from above? All of us have power to some degree, right? Um, and regardless of what kind of power you have or how much power you have, what God has given us that power to use for the good of others. That's why we have it. And so are we following in the way from above, which uses power from God, made, made right in us within our weakness for the sake of loving others? Or are we finding power from within ourselves for the sake of controlling those who are around us in our lives? If you're in the marketplace, do you use your power and position to develop or empower your colleagues, your employees and clients? Or do you use your power to keep yourself above others so that they won't climb over you? If you're a man, do you see your power and strength as something to wield in order to cherish and empower and uplift and value the women in your life? Or do you see your position as a way to control and manipulate and you see yourself as superior? Or if you're a Christian, do you see your power as a God-given gift to love others and to share the good news of Jesus? Or do you see your power as a thing that makes you morally superior and thus leading to self-righteousness? That's the difference between power from above and power from below. And Pastor Scott Sauls, he says this in his book, Jesus Outside the Lines. This is about the whole movement of Christianity now, when we think of Christian power broadly, not just individually. Christianity flourishes most as a life-giving minority, not a powerful majority. It is through subversive countercultural acts of love and justice and service for the common good that Christianity has always gained the most ground. And this aligns exactly with what Luke is saying. That the gospel is a gospel for all human flourishing, but it is made known in weakness for the sake of loving others around us. So when we encounter God's grace, it humbles us to use God's power, which is known in our very weakness for the sake of loving others. Grace troubles, God's grace troubles us, it humbles us, and there's still more that grace does in our life. Luke tells us that Mary went down to a town in Judah she went to the house of Zechariah to see Elizabeth, and Mary, full of grace from God, identifying as a servant of God, is unable to contain her joy as she runs to tell Elizabeth about the good news of God. So think about this. She's in a culturally shameful place. We talked about that before, and yet she can't contain her joy, and so she runs to Elizabeth in order to tell her what God has done in her life. You would think she would keep that quiet, 
but she does it. She's filled with joy. I love that. And these two women, they share a powerful moment, finding themselves being written into the story of God's plan of redemption. Elizabeth is the mother of John the Baptist. Mary is the mother of Jesus. And Luke, within his story, he places a lot of value within his whole gospel. He places a lot of value in the role of women in the gospel. That God has a particular plan for women in his plan of redemption. And he honors Mary and, and Elizabeth here. What we see next is Mary's joy overflowing into song. Look with me at Luke 1, 46 through 49. This was read for us earlier. My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. Behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed, for he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. She's seeing with the eyes of faith. Though her culture might call her insignificant, God calls her favored one. And she embraces that with joy. And Mary continues in verses 50 through 53 to praise all those who revere the Lord. And then in verses 54 through 55, she offers praise for the work God is doing in his people. Mary's words do not communicate some sort of begrudging obedience or some sort of religious obligation to God's plan in her life. No, this woman's words communicate that she is overjoyed that God has called her favor. And she was moved to joy because of God's call on her life. And the same goes for us, too. When we encounter God's grace, it will move us. And this doesn't mean that you have to write a Broadway song if you believe in Jesus. I don't believe that. And I'm not going to write a Broadway song. Tyler, if you knew Pastor Tyler, he might very well write a Broadway song because of his love for Jesus. And I'm not even saying that you have to love singing because, to Jesus because of God's grace but I am saying that God's grace moves us. An encounter with God will never leave us the same than it was before we had that encounter. So let me ask us this question. How are our lives different because of God's grace towards us? Are we living with greater compassion because of the love that Jesus has shown us? Are we singing with greater joy because of the joy we found in Jesus? Are we serving with greater humility because of the humble servant Jesus became in order to die for us? Are we lamenting and feeling the pains of others as if they were our own because Jesus became our pains and he suffered with us? Are we refraining from immoral, unjust, and unethical forms of work, entertainment, and consumption because Jesus is the Prince of Peace. He is the judge of the earth and the Holy One who longs to see his broken world made new. God's grace should move us in all of these directions. And if you're not a follower of Jesus, let me ask you this. Isn't what I just described for you the life that you long to live anyways? Even if you struggle to believe in something like the virgin birth, you are in good company because Mary struggled to believe it too. Are you tired of trying to be better on your own? C.S. Lewis writes that our world is filled with the scent of a flower that you have not found, the echo of a song that you have not heard, news from a country that you have never yet visited. And what he means by that is that God's grace is closer to us than we realize. And he means that we sense that we were made for God, we were made for a world, and we were made for a task that goes far beyond our imagination. God's grace is more beautiful and it is more joy-filled than we can imagine 
a life for ourselves. Mary sensed that joy, and that's what moved her to sing her song that she did. In the 1870s, Horatio Spafford sent his wife and four daughters on a trip to Europe. They lived in Chicago, and he had to stay behind because of work. Um, and so he sent his daughters over to Europe um, and his wife over to Europe, four daughters. And as his wife and four daughters were on their way to Europe, their ship collided with another vessel, and it sank. And he received a telegram from his wife, and it just started with these words, saved alone. His wife was named Anna, and so as he traveled to Europe, he remembered what had happened earlier on that year, along with what had just happened to his four daughters. Earlier that year, he lost his four-year-old son to scarlet fever. And in Chicago, there was the great Chicago fire that happened that year, which burned down all the properties that he had invested in, which left the, the family financially unstable. And yet on this journey overseas to see his wife and reconnect with her over in Europe, he penned these lyrics, which you've sung before. When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. What compels someone to write a song like that in the midst of so much grief and sorrow and much less put it to a melody. How can a person even think these thoughts in the position that he was in? It's the grace of God. And that's the same thing that inspired Mary to sing out her song in the midst of her situation. Even as God's favored one, the world didn't see her as favored. And when we encounter the grace of God, we too cannot help but respond. Grace, God's grace makes us sing, and I believe that both literally and metaphorically, God's grace to us often seems incomprehensible. It troubles us when we encounter it. It humbles us always, and it moves us. It never leaves us the same. Frederick Buchner, a Christian writer and ordained minister, he says this about God's grace. This is one of my like, favorite quotes of all time. The grace of God means something like, here is your life. You might never have been, but you are because the party wouldn't have been complete without you. Here is the world. Beautiful and terrible things will happen. Don't be afraid. I'm with you. Nothing can ever separate us. There's only one catch. Like any other gift, the gift of grace can be yours only if you'll reach out and take it. Maybe being able to reach out and take it is a gift too. It's my hope that all of us, myself included, will reach out and accept God's grace today and honestly every day, even though I struggle to do that. But when we encounter God's grace, it will move us and it won't leave us the same. It will trouble us at times. We'll struggle to comprehend it. It will always humble us and move us to being a humble servant. Ultimately, sometimes making us not favored by our culture or our society. And also, 
it will move us and we won't remain the same. Would you pray with me, please? God, I thank you for your scripture, that it's not just black words on white pages, but it's the bread of life. God, I thank you for your grace shown to us in Mary's story and ultimately culminating in the sacrifice of your son, Jesus Christ, for our sin and for our good. Help us to seize your grace every day for your glory and for our good. Help us to be content with the call that you have placed on our lives and to sense your grace that empowers us through your Holy Spirit every day. Lord Jesus, we love you. It's in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. We pray these things. Amen.